Hey there, welcome from Chile, Gardner, Montana. This is Lee Hoy, your host of Capturing Nature, the nature photography podcast that examines the creative, technical, and unpredictable elements of photography in the wild outdoors. Here we go. This episode will feature a review of the Olympus M Zuko Digital 150-400 f4.5 with the built-in 1.25 teleconverter. I get chills just saying that. We'll be looking at the photographer's screen. I'm going to take you into Lightroom and show you some of the features under masking. I'm also going to tell you about one of my favorite North American mammals, the American bison. Check that. Buffalo. Just to aggravate some of y'all. And then we're going to be talking about what is the difference between a snapshot and an image? How to move from snapshots to outstanding photography. Stay tuned. Look forward to visiting with you today. Have you ever had Christmas come early for you? Well, in September of 2021, it certainly came early for me. I had been waiting for many months to get my hands on the new Olympus 150-400 f4.5 with the built-in 1.25 teleconverter IS Pro. Now, that is a mouthful, but this lens is a handful, not in terms of size, but in terms of capability. So on today's segment of Breaking Free with Olympus Gear, I'm going to be sharing with you my thoughts on this lens. And simply put, to sum up quickly, this is the best lens I've ever owned. It blew me away. Now, let me start off with just some of the basic, you know, specifications and features on this lens. Now, being a 150 to 400 millimeter lens in the Olympus OMD system, that means 35 millimeter equivalent is a 300 to 800. And as soon as you flip on the built-in teleconverter, you get to 1000 millimeters. And that is a constant 4.5 until you flip on the teleconverter and all of a sudden you're at 5.6. So still an extremely fast lens, even with the teleconverter flipped on. It has eight exposure value image stabilization. It also gives you 0.71 max image magnification. And a part of this is because your close focus distance is 4.26 feet. I will have an image of a fly I took in Ecuador where with very little cropping, you will swear that this image was taken with a macro lens, but it was taken handheld at a thousand millimeters. You're going to see a lot of these features in this lens just really blow everything else away. And as soon as you mount this on an OMD EM1X, you just have one of the best combinations for wildlife and bird photography. I can go on and on about listening to other people with their full frame cameras. For people who truly believe that this doesn't perform as well, I hear people talk about, well, yeah, but you can't shoot it over ISO 800. I'm going to post an ISO 6400 uh, image from this lens and camera combination, and I guarantee you it's as good as any other camera at that ISO. It's an awesome image, and for all the people who like to pixel peep, maybe a lot of them should spend more time in the field because I see them arguing about pixels and crap, and many of their images just suck. So maybe instead of pixel peep, 
deep and maybe you try to get better images out in the field that might help your photography a lot. Another thing is this is splash proof, dust proof, freeze proof built lens with my M1X and this lens and, and many other pro lenses. When I need to clean them off, like if I've got sand from the Galapagos Islands all over it, I just take my water bottle and pour it over it or I'll hold it under the sink and rinse it off real quick. Go ahead, do that with Sony. Try that with Canon. You know, give your Nikon a little rinse under the sink and come back and let me know how that went for you. Uh, this lens has an autofocus, manual focus switch, like many other lenses. It has a preset focus. It has multiple buttons of this all around the lens, so it's easy to reach regardless of how you're holding or shooting with that lens. Not only does it has an autofocus limiter switch, like many other lenses have, but when you combine it with the M1X, which has a digital autofocus limiter, that means you can literally go in and program the exact distance you want for autofocus range. And I don't know of any other camera body that does that. I'll have to research that a little bit, but I don't believe any other one has that feature. Now, what else is special about this lens is it is compatible with the 1.4 and the 2.0 teleconverter, uh, the OMD teleconverters. We were recently in Panama in November 2020, and Kevin Lachlan, the owner of Wildside Nature Tours, he had his on a tripod. We had a colored forest falcon flying in land on a nice perch, beautiful background, and we had taken hundreds, if not thousands of images of this bird and the day before it had come in and landed and was consuming a, a giant red grasshopper so he decided to play around and stick the 1.4 and the 2.0 teleconverter on there at 2.0 you could begin to tell a little bit of an impact at 1.4 simply phenomenal performance on this lens with that teleconverter added so you're getting some crazy reach and incredibly high quality i don't know about what other people are always looking for in a lens, but this particular lens, you'd be surprised at how easy it is to hand hold this lens. Again, it is very compact. I would say you'd be, if you've had the Olympus, the OMD 300 millimeter F4, it is not much longer, not much bigger. In fact, when you put it in your hand, it is so well balanced, it really feels slightly less. And so for people who are really concerned about weight, you're going to be blown away at this combination in terms of weight. You know, when I shot with Canon for 20-something years, I used a tripod almost all of the time because I knew it was going to make a difference in the quality. Now, I have a great tripod. I have the Photo Pro E6L, but I find myself not having to utilize it nearly as much because of the image stabilization that this lens and body combination provides. Uh, if you have the 1.25 built-in teleconverter on, then your maximum aperture is 5.6 and your minimum goes to F29. So uh, those are some of the specifications on this lens. What I find really does it for me is the autofocusing capability, which is spectacular. The sharpness and the clarity that this lens produces, you know, what's great is this is not a push-pull. You know, it's not a dust pump like some of the other well-known wildlife lenses we've seen in the past from other manufacturers. This lens is going to give you a much greater leeway in terms of hand-holding. I was testing in Ecuador. We had a blind where they would turn on a black light, draw on insects, and then, you know, they'd get up the next morning and photograph the insect-eating birds that would come in. Well, you know, it was low light, heavy tree cover early in the morning. And so I was shooting and I wanted to test the image stabilization. We had a white speckled puff bird come in and land and it sat there for quite a while at a nice range. So I thought, let me see how low on shutter speed I can go and get a tack sharp image. Well, I pushed it all the way down to one fourth of a second and we'll share this image on the uh, episode uh, notes page. 
and you can see it is nice and sharp. At one half of a second, I got what I would call acceptably sharp for many people. Not good enough for me. And I could have kept trying, but I'd been hand-holding it at low shutter speeds, testing it for quite a while. Some people might be able to get away even slower, maybe a full second. And some people aren't going to be able to hand-hold it at one-fourth of a second and get a sharp image, no matter how much you try. But I was able to successfully do it down that slow a shutter speed. Of course, that, that also assumes that your subject is not moving. I mean, if the bird moved any, you're going to get a blurry image. But again, I don't know too many other camera systems where you're going to hand hold at a thousand millimeters at one fourth of a second and get a nice sharp image. Now, a lot of people, the retail price on this is around $7,500. And when you compare this to the price of some of the Canon, Sony, Nikon large lenses, and what they're capable of, this is hands down a much better bargain than any of those lenses. I had the Canon 600 version 2, you know, that was a $14,000 lens. It did not perform nearly as well as this lens. And they're still nowhere as close on the close focusing distance as this particular lens. I mean, OMD is really known for the technology that goes into many of their lenses. And I would encourage you, you know, take a great look at this if you are serious at all about wildlife photography or even even, you know, dragonflies, insects. You know, when I shot Canon, I would have to take the 100 to 400. I'd put a, an extension tube on there. So I lost infinity focus. I couldn't really do birds and dragonflies at the same time. Now I can walk around and do medium-sized insects all the way up to any sized wildlife. No extension tubes, no loss of focus, and all that in one primarily handheld lens. You know, the autofocus is nice and fast, particularly when you pair it with the uh, OMD bird tracking autofocus. I, I see a couple of people here and there complaining about it. I, I think they just don't know how to set up their autofocus properly. And we'll be talking about that on future episodes. So a lot of people were bemoaning the delay in getting this lens. Well, I had originally placed my order in January of 2020, but a freak snowstorm down here destroyed $7,500 worth of tents and teepees at my campgrounds I own near Big Bend National Park. So needless to say, the money I was going to be putting towards my lens went towards that for a little while. And then, you know, with COVID shutdowns and hard time getting parts for the lens and then with a much higher than anticipated demand, as you can imagine, this lens is spectacular. Well, what that produced was a delay. Now I see more and more people getting their copies, I'm sure as, as manufacturing is ramped up and everybody is just absolutely ecstatic with this lens once they get it. $7,500 is a big investment and it depends on how much photography you do. Now, let me compare it to the other lenses. Uh, when I was in the Galapagos Islands, a client wanted to try it out and they had the 100 to 400 lens, the Olympus lens that was built by, I believe, Sigma. And I put that on my EM1X and it's not even in the same ballpark. Yes, it's much cheaper at around $2,000, but I can tell you the autofocus and everything, while good on the 100-400, it's not even fit to play in the same field. This lens is just that much better. My go-to bird lens prior was the 300 millimeter f4, often with, with a 1.4 teleconverter on there. I would also use the 40 to 150 with a doubler. And since getting this lens, I, I rarely use the 40 to 150 except now for landscapes. It, this lens just covers that range so well and provides such diversity that, you know, really you can almost take three lenses and have almost everything covered. If you go with the new H25 f4.0, you stick in the 40 to 150 and then you have the 150 to 400. Boom, there's your three lenses that you can take anywhere and cover almost every image that you'd like to capture except for night sky where you might want to grab one of the 2.8 lenses. Lenses. Well, 
for me, when I go out to shoot with this lens, I've used it now in very cold. I've had it in very humid. I've shot it in very dry climates. OMD just hands up to the climate far better than any other camera system. And that's one of the things they pride themselves on. Well, when it comes to looking for equipment, we all know we're going to invest a lot of money. And camera gear is not cheap. If you go with cheap stuff, you know, generally you're going to get what you pay for in the camera world. Not always, but most of the time. This lens brings a new level of enthusiasm to photography. It's going to allow you to shoot things that you just couldn't do before. You know, on our Amazon photography workshop, I didn't even have this lens. I was still using the 300. The OMD's image stabilization and the compact size, you know, we had owl monkeys in really dark settings. And, you know, our clients who had longer lenses from Nikon, Canon, Sony, whatever, they couldn't, even at a high ISO, they could not get a sharp image at low shutter speeds, you know, like we could with our OMD systems. Now, yes, some of the other systems are starting to put out some better quality mirrorless cameras, and they all brag on features that A, OMD's had now for several years, and the OMD system still has features that they don't have, like live composite, in-camera focus stacking, and whatnot. So, this lens for wildlife and bird photography is hands down the best one I've ever used. And, and I can't imagine any of the other lenses coming anywhere close to competing in terms of minimum focus, how your focal length combined with fast shutter speed, the constant 4.5 throughout the zoom range, the fact it's weatherproof. You take all these features together and honestly, it's a tremendous value even at $7,500. And I 100% promise you, if you buy it and you decide you want to keep it, you will get your money back out of this lens because people are, are still clamoring to get their hands on it. And as it gets more and more out there, you're going to hear more and more in reviews about how spectacular this image is. So I would highly suggest you hop over to the show's website, take a look at this episode, and I'm going to share images at high ISO, slow shutter speed, using bird tracking, and you know a variety of images so you can see some of the results. So again, for $7,500, I think this is one of the best values of any camera lens I have ever purchased. I'm glad I was finally to get my hands on one. And as an OMD ambassador, I did not get this lens for free. I want you to know I pay for my gear. Uh, there are very few things that have been given to me for free. And you know I like that because in the long run, it lets me give you a much more honest review. I suppose if there's anything, you know, the lens hood closes so that you can put it in a smaller backpack or a travel bag for getting on the airlines. The lens cover is a nice heavy duty canvas type cover with a Velcro. In a pinch with your gloves and everything on, it can sometimes be a little harder to get on. So I might look for a different type of easy on and off for when I'm out in the field. The lens cap that came with it, I think is far better for travel. When your hands are bulky, it can be a little harder sometimes getting that tab. But most of the time when I'm you know, out ready to shoot. I don't have anything on it at all. And then I guess if I had one complaint, if you're going to put a circular polarizer on this lens with the hood, there's no gap for you to rotate it. So it's not really an option unless you keep the hood off. Now, to be honest, how often would I have ever used that? Probably not. So if that's my worst complaint, then as you can imagine, life is pretty good with this lens. So that's my overall review. If you have questions about this lens, please leave it in the comments and I'll be happy to respond to videos related to this lens on our YouTube channel. And uh, you're welcome to ask questions and comment there too. So again, the OMD M. 
Zuko Digital 150 to 400 F4.5 TC 1.25 IS Pro is worth every penny that you're going to pay for that lens. In the photographer screen segment today, I'm going to be sharing with you a new feature as of the 11.1 release of Lightroom Classic. They added a masking feature, which has totally changed how I approach editing my images. Now, obviously, in a podcast, it might be tough for you to get a full understanding of this. So I'm going to share a little bit with you today, and then I'm going to encourage you to hop on over to the Big Ben Birding and Photo Tours YouTube channel. And I'm going to have a video where you can watch me using this Lightroom feature and making adjustments on actual images in that video. But I wanted to share with you a little bit in today's podcast, because in the past, I relied a lot more on global adjustments and some masking. And I'll be honest, I was never a big fan of Photoshop, even though it had much better selection capabilities than Lightroom. But with this new release and this new masking feature, I can now go in and select a subject with tremendous accuracy. I'm very impressed with the algorithms in Lightroom and how well it works. And I can then add to it or subtract to it using brushes or color selections or luminance range. And these different fine-tuning instruments really allow us to get very specific with regards to exactly what it is we're selecting. And then there's an invert feature. And my video is going to focus more on using the masking to edit wildlife and bird images. And because really using it with landscape is very different. And many of the adjustments I would make after my selection are different. So today I'm just going to focus on Lightroom's masking related to how I might edit some of my wildlife and bird images. And in the video, I'll select a handful and you'll get to watch from beginning to end on how I'm going to do that. So, you know, I used to do a lot of bulk editing in Lightroom and, and becoming a photography workshop instructor. I'm probably a good three, 400,000 images behind on editing. Now in the past, I would edit all my images, label all my images. I was very OCD about that, but I simply have such a bulk of images that I'm no longer able to do what I used to do. So what I do now is I call my images and I look for what are the top images? What are the ones I really want to invest some time in? Images that might go to social media, images that might be used for public publications, print, film, whatever it might be, I am now going to, rather than invest a ton of time in every image, I now choose to focus on investing time in my select images, my five-star images. And even then, not all of them get edited. And it might not get edited for a while. You know, I might reflect back or need some more images for marketing for a particular workshop or, you know, I get requests in a variety of ways and I never know what image. Now, when I fall behind on labeling, that can make it harder for me to go back and find some images. But, you know, uh, again, in the quantity of images I'm capturing a year, it's just become uh, a large burden. And I do have systems for doing it. It's just that I'm not always able to have the time for doing that. Although I have to be careful, I had a really powerful statement from, of all people, John Tesh one day. I heard him say that if you make the statement, you don't have time, is not really a statement of fact. It's a statement of priority. And I thought, ooh, that's really good because we can't say yes to everything. But when you say you don't have the time, you're not making a statement of fact. You're making a statement of priority. We all have the same amount of time that we can allocate to different things. And sometimes I just choose not to allocate it to all the same detailed functions I used to apply in my editing. I'm not saying it's not a good system. It was a great system, but I just simply choose to put that time elsewhere. And occasionally that's the very productive 
items, and occasionally it's to complete time wasters like scrolling through TikTok or something silly like that. This new masking, what it does, in particular, it's changed how I edit high ISO images. Uh, I used to use Topaz Denoise quite a bit and Topaz Sharpening. But now with this masking, I can do much of the same without ever having to leave Lightroom and thus saving myself a lot of time. Uh, I still occasionally might go into Topaz Gigapixel, but frankly, I haven't been using any of those three quite as often as I was in the past because I just find I'm able to accomplish what I want within Lightroom. And, you know, the, the more I can focus my editing time and reduce that time and get the product I want, then the more time I have to apply to other priorities. So what I want to encourage you is many images I come across could really benefit from some significant improvement in post-processing. Now, of course, whenever we look at an image on Facebook or Instagram, we know that they have limits on the quality of those images that we can share. So you always have to keep that in mind when you're looking at other people's images. I mean, there are world-class photographers and you zoom in large on their images and the quality is not the same as it's going to be if you're looking on their 27-inch iMac or whatever, God forbid, PC they're using. Yeah, there's one of my rants I'll get on someday. PCs do make great door stoppers, though. I won't lie. Uh, they're great for playing games and for holding doors open. And those are certainly two outstanding uses. I'm kidding. If you're a PC user, stick with me. Don't give up. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things. We all have our preferences. Well, in Lightroom and using its masking, what this masking does is rather than trying to paint and waste a lot of time, it is going to go in and you just select the subject. There's an option to select subject or the sky. And in this case, most of the time when I'm photographing wildlife, I don't just want a plain sky background. But if I want to select a background, I can always do an invert after I select the subject. So what this new update has allowed me to do is apply adjustments with extreme accuracy to the subject of my image, which not only might include the bird, but the perch or a rock, you know, the segment of the image often that is in focus is what I want to apply some of these specific adjustments to. I guess we could use the phrase localized adjustments, but now basically this masking feature is saving us a great deal of time in our selection. And that's really the game changer here. And also the ability for me to apply adjustments to places where I want and to not apply those where I don't want. You know, if use a graduated filter, you know, the radio filter, inevitably you had areas that you just didn't want to apply it to. And, and even with the uh, graduated filter, yes, I could you do a luminance or a color adjustment, but I think this new feature far surpasses the capabilities of the prior selection. So if you haven't messed with the new Lightroom Classic, uh, masking feature. Let me encourage you here in just a little bit to hop over, you know, maybe if you're at home, you can pause the podcast and hop over and watch the uh, supplemental video to this. Or if you're out on the road, just know when you get back, please go into the YouTube channel and pull up the video and you will get to see it in action with how I edit these images. And I would encourage you, just like I asked you to like and subscribe to the podcast, if you would sure like and subscribe to my YouTube channel, you will help me in further my ability to bring you some high quality content and continue to provide this for you. Well, without having to waste a lot more time here on the podcast, verbally describing what is better understood visually, again, hop over to the Big Ben Birding and Photo Tours YouTube channel and watch the Lightroom masking video. 
Today's segment of Know Before You Click, Understanding Your Subject, I'm going to be talking about one of North America's most majestic animals. And I grew up going to see this animal at the Wichita Mountains Wildlife Refuge. Both my parents were educators. We didn't get to go on a lot of exotic trips. But I always looked forward to going to the Wichita Mountains Wildlife Refuge because I knew I would get to see some bison, a.k.a. buffalo. Man, I was so stoked. Every time my mom and dad told me that's where we were heading. And yeah, I saw elk, got to see a couple of mountain lions in uh, Wichita Mountains Wildlife Refuge. But there is something about knowing the large herds that used to roam the plains. And of course, there's the plains bison and there's the woodland bison, uh, which is larger and relegated mostly to Canada and up north. Some uh, the things I'm going to be talking about today primarily apply to the plains bison. But it's such an iconic animal of the, of the American Old West. And yes, they used to be even spread to the east and all over. Uh, I used to work near one of the the southernmost uh, buffalo jump in the U.S. near Langtree, Texas is. And all the history, for me, I can still picture mountain men wearing those big old heavy, you know, buffalo coats, which, oh my gosh, I'd love to have one of those, one of those antique coats. I have a bison hide on my bed and you've never slept better than when you have a big old bison hide. You know, everybody thinks they, oh, look, weighted blankets. Listen, um, Native Americans were using weighted blankets way before you ever thought of getting one from Ikea or Amazon. And it's called a bison hide because it's so heavy. It's so warm. You put it on your bed and it holds you in place. You're not rolling all over the place. And it is one of the most incredible sleeping experiences you'll ever have. I love having one on my bed. You know, there's so many iconic historical elements related to the bison. And that is one of the most frustrating things for me when we're in Yellowstone in winter or other locations. Oh, it's a bison. Oh, we photographed them. I will be clear. I could photograph bison every day until the day I die and not get bored because their faces, their eyes, their mannerisms, their behavior their history in North America is so unique and such a phenomenal, powerful animal that my suggestion might be, and I could be wrong, but my suggestion is if you're bored of photographing bison, your creativity level might be low because there are so many different levels, angles, lighting conditions, backgrounds that you can shoot them in that it's not like you're ever getting the same image. Uh, so I think working the same subject over and over and over again is a great way to cultivate creativity because it forces you to see things differently. Emily Talpin, who is a uh, a lady who asked me to mentor her during uh, the Breakthrough with Olympus program. I don't know if it's been a year or two ago, but we've since become really good friends. She's going to start doing some workshops for Wildside Nature Tours. She's going to join me in Glacier in 2023, and we're looking at some other locations. Uh, she loves macro. Her water drop photography is spectacular. She's a, a relatively new OMD Pro Ambassador. Congratulations. Well-deserved. But one of the things near her home is she has some ponds and there's beaver. And she's often photographing the beaver. And I can't picture ever hearing her say, oh, look, it's another beaver, you know, and not wanting to photograph them. And so when I hear this about bison, it's really a little disheartening to me because, A, I think it reveals a little something about how we tend to approach photography. I have some friends that want to photograph rare birds. They'll drive a long ways just for one rare bird. And that's fine. Rock one, have a ball. I used to do that. Doesn't interest me anymore. I am a wildlife photographer. I'm not, a, I've never photographed it before photographer. Like I'm dying to go photograph orangutans or chimpanzees. Never got a chance to do that in the wild. But if I never do, I'm still going to love what I do every day. So I wish we could somehow move past the thought that it always has to be 
a new subject to get great photography. What it has to be is a new way of looking at things, right? That's why, even though I don't do portrait work or still life, why I so respect some of the phenomenal photographers out there who do it well, because they can take people and look at them differently with different settings, different outfits, and capture such unique new images. Or doing it with a still life, you know, an old industrial rusty gears and how they look at it. Like, well, I photographed gears before. I guess I don't ever need to do it again. That's not how they look at it, right? So I don't know why we look at that with subjects. So if I went to Yellowstone in winter and all I saw was bison, I could get some phenomenal shots. I'd have a ball. I sometimes think people miss a lot of great shots because you'll ask a workshop, would y'all like to stop? No, you know, we want to look for, and I get it. They want to look for wolves. They want to look for fox. They want to look for some of the other more unique. And I, I get that completely. But man, there are some lighting conditions, you know, a heavy snow that's fallen early in the morning. The bison are laying there snow covered. I want to work the snot out of that. I don't want to just grab a couple of shots and move on. Right. So I would suggest that the more we get to understand bison, buffalo, I just it's so much more fun to say buffalo. The more you get to understand them, the better your photography will be. And that's going to be true for a wide variety of subjects. Now, we all have watched videos of the numbnuts in Yellowstone. All right, not numbnuts, jackasses in Yellowstone who want to go up and pet one, who want to get too close. And, you know, for Yellowstone National Park, uh, their minimum recommendation on distance is 25 yards. And what you need to understand is, yep, you can get that close, but you need to understand that a ticked off uh, bison can cover that very quickly at 30 miles an hour. They can do some serious damage. So the first thing when it comes to photographing bison is to understand the safety. If they start pawing the ground, and as Kevin Lachlan likes to say, uh, if the tail is raised, there's two reasons. They're either about to charge or discharge. So you learn to read body language, and that will help you understand when it might be time to get in a vehicle, when it might be time to get behind a vehicle, when it might be time to drive your vehicle away. Okay, so safety always comes first. We're talking about a very big, a very powerful and a very fast animal that can do things that way faster, way quicker and in the blink of an eye. And, you know, we're talking, uh, you know, good size bull getting over a ton, you know, really solid horns, a huge head uh, that let's just be honest, other than grizzly bears and a pack of wolves, there's probably nothing else they're really going to be afraid of. Uh, because I've seen video of them ramming into trucks and, and vehicles and parks and stuff. So always understand safety when you're photographing bison. Another challenge about them that I like is you've got this really dark pelt, right? And so you really have to manage your exposures well. If you have really harsh light, that's when photographing bison can be really difficult because you get these deep, deep, dark areas, and then these really bright, bright areas. I often see some phenomenal black and white images of bison because people have understood that the contrast and the texture of their pelt and the horns and often the environment they're in make for great black and white images. So it doesn't mean you can't photograph them in harsh light, but it means you might want to think more about black and white than color. And, you know, you've got this, sometimes you have a very dark face on this dark background and when you have that with a bison, if you're relying on your camera meter, the camera's going to overexpose it because it wants to make that dark scene neutral gray. So then it's going to brighten it too much. And then if you've got a dark face against a very bright background, odds are the face will be underexposed. So then you really want to manage your histogram and getting that exposure to the right without blowing out your highlights. You're going to hear me say this over and over again on this podcast. Exposed to the right without blowing out the highlights. Now, if you have a backlit bird and a bright sky, you're going to blow out those highlights. But the sky is not the subject. OK, 
Okay. So I think one of the fun things for me about photographing bison is, is the exposure challenges they bring and getting it just right. And then depending on the behavior you're looking for, if you, if you want to photograph bison during the rut, you're going to be out July through September. Okay. And some of those are good times to be in places photographing them because they're often slower times of the year in some of the places, not all, but in some of the places where you tend to go find them. If you want to get images of them calving or really young calves, you're going to be there late April to June. You know, that's when the cows are giving birth and new calves are going to be out and about. And you might get some related predator interaction. But here's another rant, how people tend to treat predation in nature. Uh, I get so sick of people sometimes doing things to make a predator unsuccessful. Uh, really goes all against me. And y'all realize I have a lot more rant episodes coming up than I probably have time for. You know, another cool behavior is getting them when they're desk bathing. You know, I've seen this many times in Wichita Mountains when they're rolling. In fact, in some places in the Great Plains, there's still historical locations where bison would take dust baths over and over so much that there's still a little divot in the ground, you know, a little sunken area that often would hold water occasionally after storms and stuff. So very beneficial for a wide variety of wildlife. We also love extremely cold conditions in Yellowstone when they might go to the thermal features and when they get hoarfrost and snow on their pelt. Uh, oftentimes, minus 10 or more is really good for getting some of those phenomenal images in Yellowstone. So when we're going to photograph them, you know, you really got to watch their head angle. And I tend to take quite a few images of a subject when the conditions are really good, because sometimes, particularly when I've got a really close bison and I'm shooting just the head, sometimes I'm getting just a part of the head. You never know exactly the position the eye is going to be in, in that image. And that eye position, is it right at you? Is it looking ahead? Is it looking up? What direction is it looking can really impact the overall feel of that image. So again, it's digital. Don't be shy. If you've got great light, a great composition, you cannot control the position of an animal's head. Head. Let's just say this. I certainly don't recommend it, particularly with bison trying to control that. So the more images you capture, the more odds you might have of the eye being just in the right position. I captured some images in the second week of the Yellowstone workshop here in 2022. Really close shots. And you can actually see the snow reflecting in the bison's eye. You can see the grass and the snow. And at certain eye angles, it showed up much better than others. Well, obviously, I had no idea the exact position when I'm pressing the shutter button. I mean, I might get a feel for it, but it could move that eye so quick. So, again, don't be shy when you have great lighting, great conditions. Particularly Yellowstone in winter, I find that you can get solitary bulls. You can get large groups of bison on the move in winter. And you've got to learn how to take advantage of it. And, and, you know, if you get bison walking in a line towards you sometimes down the road, if you get real low and angle up, the foreground will be in such a way that you won't even know it's on the road. And you'll just have this real imposing, menacing figures. And if they're covered in hoarfrost or snow, even better uh, because you just have this giant beast coming down at you. And that's a strong image when you show that because the majority of people you encounter are never going to be on their knees in front of bison at a safe distance and getting images like that. So it's a view that most people just really aren't used to. I would also encourage you to, when you find yourself going, ah, well, I don't know if I want to shoot them anymore. Think different. Uh, maybe do a study of a bison. Maybe look at a close-up of a hoof. Maybe look at a close-up of just the pelt or a transition of colors. Look at just the horn or, or the eye in the horn or the mouth. You know, is it chewing? Look at environmental shots. Not everything needs to be a tight portrait. And look at how trees in the background might lend themselves to a pleasing composition. Look at how the land slopes. 
you know, are they standing on the side of a hill where if you're shooting a vertical, it's almost all going to be in focus and, and not really that pleasing an image. We had bison running through some rocks coming down a slope. And when they're running, they're flinging the snow. You know, do you have some young bison out playing? If you see, sometimes they get hyper and just start running around with each other. Man, stop and capture that. Make sure your shutter speed is going to be where you want it to be. All right. Try some intentional blurs. There are so many things you can do, but it's a shame when our response is, oh, it's just bison. You know, sometimes they're too far away. Sometimes they're not. It just depends on what you're trying to shoot. So try to really push that creativity when it comes to shooting bison. Get to know them. Find out where some close herds are and go spend some time there. If you're in Denver, you know, you've got the great Rocky Mountain Arsenal Wildlife Refuge there. You know, if you're up in Montana, you have the the wild bison. Kimmer, if it's actually called the reserve or preserve or refuge, either way, you've got that up there in Montana, you know. So so take advantage of those places. Uh, Wichita Mountains Wildlife Refuge, Caprock Canyon State Park in Texas. Texas. You can find sometimes, and then on some private ranches, uh, I know New Mexico has some, and, and Black Hills Badlands National Park, there by the Black Hills, you can get to Wind Cave and find it, some nice herds up there. So take advantage of them, enjoy them. Uh, they're easy to find. You know, if you're not great at finding wildlife, well, generally you can find bison out and about. So so don't see them as just something to, uh, I've already shot those a lot. See them as a great opportunity to really push the creative and technological side of your photography. On today's segment of the experience, blending the technical and creative aspects of nature photography, I really want to start off with what I think is very apropos for one of the first podcasts I'm doing. And that is, I want to share with you the difference between a snapshot and an image, because in the long run, I hope that all of us as nature photographers are pursuing improving our ability to capture great images. So what exactly is the difference between a snapshot and an image? Well, first off, if we think about photography, photography is a nonverbal means of communication. You know, the old great old quote, a picture is worth a thousand words. And that is because a great image says so much in so many ways. Well, what I want you to think about is, you know, snapshots we see all over social media. And a snapshot of its very essence is just where someone captures a photo of a specific place or an event, and it's just a way of remembering that. There's nothing really creative. There's nothing compelling. There's no attention paid to composition or exposure. You see these for birthday parties. You see these for you know frat parties, sorority parties. We see them at sporting events, selfies. You know, yeah, every now and then you can get a really nice, compelling, creative selfie. But the fact is, a snapshot is basically to demonstrate, prove, or remember that somebody was somewhere at some time doing something. And for the most part, they're they're boring. I mean, they're just like, oh yeah, that's what was going on. In fact, for me, much of traditional wedding photography, what I call the prison lineup mode, like what I had uh, during my for my first wedding, is where you line up all these relatives and you take a photo as if it's a prison lineup. And the only time you ever pull that crap out and look at it was when someone died and you went, oh yeah, look, there's grandpa. There's what he looked like. Yeah, now he's dead. I mean, nobody ever pulled out all those silly portraits to really have a great memory. You know, that's why I love the photojournalism style of wedding photography. Those capture moments, emotions. I mean, that is compelling photography. To me, that's the difference in snapshots and photography. But in nature photography, what I want you to do is think about this. How is it that you can take the viewer of your image 
to a special place, that you can give them a new look on a familiar place, or you might share with them something they have never encountered and perhaps likely never will. How can you evoke emotions? Like great music makes you emote, right? It stirs within you a feeling of some kind. And great art should do that as well. It may evoke awe and wonder at some spectacular sight, some incredible natural phenomenon. You know, you get a sun dog, a moon dog. Many people have never seen those. Uh, and if you're not sure what those are, Google it, baby. No, I'm teasing. A sun dog is when you get uh, ice crystals in the sky and it forms a kind of a circular or partial circular rainbow around the sun. You can get the same thing around the moon. You know, maybe your image evokes some disgust for a lot of people, predator-prey images, which I actually love. But for some people, that emotes disgust or sadness or sorrow. I don't know why why everybody is always on the side of the prey. Some of us have to take the side of the predator out here. Sometimes your image will stir amusement. You know, sometimes we capture uh, funny or compelling in terms of humorous-type images or compassion. Uh, you know, the awes you get when you have a great image of a young animal with its mother or father or something, you know, uh, fear, you know, some images, I love photographing centipedes, scorpions, snakes, and, and those often evoke fear out of people, unnecessary fear, but fear nonetheless, or an image might evoke surprise seeing someplace you're familiar with in a completely different uh, climatic condition or uh, lighting condition or some occurrence happening there. So, we want our viewers to be moved by our images. We want to cause them to emote, to have some kind of a reaction. Snapshots don't create, generally don't create much reaction. Just, oh, yeah, there's that, you know. I, I went to the Billy Joe concert. Yep, sure enough, there's a picture of it, right? Whereas you see great concert photographers really capture the essence of a musician, a band, uh, a concert hall, a song, whatever it might be, the lighting. One of the ways I would encourage you to focus on being able to move from snapshots to images is the more you focus on subjects or topics or genres that truly interest you and are very important to you, the better your images will be. It is very hard to fake interest or passion with any success. It is in art, I believe, almost impossible. There are images I see of things that compel me to want to make a similar image, but in the long run, I really don't have an interest or passion in that. If I tried, it would most likely be seen as such. I could most likely reproduce it technically, but I don't know that I could reproduce it creatively very well. You know, and in the same world, I know my interests, I know my passions, if someone asked me to start or initiate a meaningful conversation on NASCAR or ballet, I wouldn't have anything to contribute because I have absolutely zero interest in either. In fact, if both of them disappeared, it wouldn't have a single impact on my life. I realize it would impact the lives of others greatly. And that's awesome. I'm glad if you have an interest in either of those that you have that interest. For me, it's completely and utterly meaningless. It's outside of my interest. I don't find either of them fascinating, mysterious, intriguing, curious. I can have a conversation with someone who does have that, and I will get caught up in the conversation if they are passionate about it. I'm not going to lie. It'd probably be easier for me to get a little more interested in the NASCAR than the ballet. Nevertheless, if you're passionate about it and you can carry on an interesting conversation, I can get drawn into that. So NASCAR ballet aren't bad. They just don't hold any interest for me. And if I tried to photograph those, that lack of interest would most likely result in a boring image. I have seen compelling images of both NASCAR 
and ballet, some spectacular images. But those are people that have an interest, a passion in photographing that. Racing to me, they're coming right back around. And unless something gets Western in a hurry, I probably don't care a lick. You know, it's just not my thing. But I see phenomenal images taken from both NASCAR and ballet. And that's because you're looking at photographers who have a passion or an interest in that topic. I think that to be a great photographer, to be a compelling photographer, to have images that speak to people, the more you stick with what interests you, you're going to see that become one of the keys to your success. And the reason is because the more something interests you, the more you're willing to funnel the hard work and the talent and the passion and the skill and the time to producing a great image. On workshops, people see me climbing crawling through sand and mud, climbing, you know, up a, a little bit of a branch or, or sitting at a weird, awkward, uncomfortable angle. They'll see me getting muddy and wet, doing things that most of the time I would never do, but I'm willing to do it for the image that I have in mind. And knowing what it is I love and what I love to photograph, it often requires a lot of hard work to get in that physical position. It requires hard work to understand all the technical aspects of making a particular image. Um, it requires a talent to be able to see things and know what will happen if you use a certain focal length lens or utilize a certain feature in your camera system. Like, here's a great example. I am very passionate about music. I love music and I love singing, but I tell you what, when I sing angels fall dead from heaven, literally crash into the ground, it is atrocious. It is horrific. And I know that, and I could work very hard. I could do all I could possibly do. And I am never going to sing well. It's just a fact. I have a horrible voice for singing. And in fact, I feel bad. You're having to sit here and listen to me talk. I promise you, I'm going to spare you the pain of listening to me sing. You know, I, I, every now and then you'd watch American Idol and there'd be somebody that sang horrible. And they'd say, well, my mother tells me I sing well. And I think, well, your mother's a liar and an idiot. You know, she doesn't know what she's talking about. I have enough sense to know what I'm terrible at, right? I'm never going to become a great singer. I love listening to folks like Adele and others, you know, with beautiful voices, but you could hire the best voice coach. I could practice. I might get to where I suck less, but it's still going to suck. That's just a reality, right? And that's understanding your talents. You know, I think uh, you can be anything you want to be is kind of one of the worst American lies that's ever been perpetrated because no matter how hard you try, there's certain things you're just not going to be good at. But once you find your strengths and your passions, if you will put hard work and effort and energy into that, then yes, I believe you can become a great photographer. But that passion is going to be a key to that. What it boils down to, if you're not passionate about an image, you're not going to be passionate most likely about the subject in there, right? Start out by being passionate about the subject. Like I love macro. I primarily love macro with insects of all kinds. I love flowers but so far, I don't find myself as passionate. I want my insects on a flower, but in a flower without an insect, I've tried. It just doesn't do as much for me. I love seeing a beautiful field of wild, wildflowers. You know, I live in Texas where we have some great spring wildflowers. If you look, look through my portfolio, I've never made a special trip just to go do wildflowers. I enjoy seeing great wildflower photography, whether it be wide-angle landscapes. And every now and then, like we had a great Big Ben blue bonnet bloom out here in the Big Bend area just, I don't know, a couple of years ago. Man, I loved capturing images, but that's more so because I'm passionate about Big Bend than I am necessarily wildflowers. I have field guides on wildflowers. I love them, but just not for some reason, 
to the same level that I'm more passionate about wildlife, including insect life, right? So I know what it is that really prompts me to want to get great images. What are some of the things I can help you in moving from that snapshot to an image? Number one, discover your passions. Now, when I used to work uh, both in federal government and transportation planning and some of the other boring jobs I had, I'm very good at interviewing because I don't ask the typical boring ass questions that most interviewers ask, which are redundant because you've already put that information on your resume. My God, they're so awful interviewers. However, you know, one of the things I like to ask people was, so if you had eight hours to go do whatever it is you could do and money's not an object, what would it be? Now, what I was ultimately trying to get to was passion. And some of the most depressing answers were these two, sleep and watch TV. And I thought, well, in fact, one young man one time answered, oh, I would sleep. And so I wrote down, I was making a note. And within just a few seconds, he goes, that's not a good answer, is it? And I just simply shook my head quietly like, no. Like at that point, that young man had no possibility of getting a job through me, had no interest in hiring. If that is truly your biggest passion, oh my God, what a waste of a life, right? So begin to identify your passions. If you don't know what they are, look at your checkbook and look at your calendar, where you spend your time, where you spend your money. That is going to reveal your passion. Some might say, well, I'm really busy. I'm a mom. I go to this and I go to that. Okay. All right. I understand that. Sometimes those kids take a lot of time and a lot of money, but go back to the question. If you had eight hours to do whatever you wanted to do, if you can begin to identify, and, and this podcast is for nature photography. So let's talk about that. You, you basically have your landscape genre. I'm going to separate night sky genre, macro, which can be split further into insects, can be split into flowers and reptiles and amphibians, some in the macro. Then you got your wildlife. I actually had a client the other day want to separate wildlife and birds, which I'd never heard in my life in terms of genres. But some people like to photograph birds and some people don't. But that was kind of a weird one. You know, which one of those or multiple of those genres interests you? And as you begin to narrow that down, here's what I would say. When you are actually out photographing, slow down, slow down. In today's digital world, it is so easy to get caught up in taking an obscene number of images. And, and I take lots of images, particularly of animals and birds when there's action, right? And for me, when it comes to wildlife and bird photography, I can sometimes get caught up in that. But you know what? For landscape, macro, night sky, even more so, the more you slow down and you assess what is it you're passionate about in that scene, you know, I'm sitting here just trying to think about like, okay, here in Yellowstone, you know, these past two weeks, right? I am passionate about all the wildlife we see, all the birds, and much of the landscape. Now, we had one client that basically just wanted mammals, not really not that much interest in landscape or birds. And that's fine. That's their interest, you know. In fact, they told me that they had to kind of hold their tongue while we spent some time photographing an American Dipper in great light. And it was the best light I ever had for this unique bird. I think Water Oozle is a much cooler name for the American Dipper. But, but the American Dipper is such a unique bird and beautiful light, you know, feeding in these rapids and diving under the water to catch invertebrates. And I got some phenomenal shots. Well, I understand what she said. And other people were out photographing this bird. And I'm not going to let that make me feel bad because we're photographing what other people are passionate about as well. But by slowing down, I find that some clients, like, like we had a fox sleeping and we'd been with it for quite a while, but the group was ready to move on. Well, had I been by myself, I would, and we had beautiful light. I would have stayed with that subject, being patient as long as possible, waiting for some great action. 
what I find is sometimes some of the biggest differences between professional and advanced amateurs or amateur photographers, the biggest difference can be patience, slowing down. And I learned this greatly from a great cinematographer friend, Skip Hobie. You know, cinematographers have to be even way more patient than photographers. And getting into macro photography made it much more imperative that I slow down. Much of my life, I was always in a hurry. You know, I'm Scottish, Irish, and British. I'm built like a mule. I can carry lots of weight. And there was a time where I'd carry a long lens for birds. I'd carry a, a wide angle lens. I'd carry a macro lens. And I would just, you know, and this is when I was using Canon gear, weighing a ton, you know, I would try to do it all at once. And I found out, you know what, if I want outstanding photography, quit trying to photograph any and everything that runs across my path. So now if I go out for macro, I generally have a macro body on and nothing else. Now in the Galapagos, because once you get off the boat, you have, yeah, I might bring all three, but I don't necessarily have all three of them hanging off my body. If I want great landscape photography, I'm going to focus on landscape. You know, if I go out in Big Bend in summer, I am taking my wide angle, my long telephoto lens for long lens panoramics, and I'm going to focus that day. Now, yeah, if a bear walks out, I'm going to do my best. If I go up in the mountains for macro, I don't even worry about having my wide angle with me for landscapes. I've learned to just be patient, slow down, let my passion, right? Let my interests, let the light and then let whatever subjects I'm lucky enough to come across dictate what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to cultivate creativity, looking at composition. I am going to see how the light is impacting on that frame. I'm going to check all the edges of the frame, and I'm going to slow down and try to capture a phenomenal image. And I would encourage you, as you think about what is the difference between a snapshot and an image, I would rather show one person a spectacular image, one image, than to show a thousand people 50 snapshots. I mean, we all know that relative that goes somewhere and they take 5,000 snapshots and there might be one or two compelling images, right? And they want to show you all. And that's cool. That's what they do. They want you to enjoy it. But in reality, you already know they went there and you're seeing some of the things, you know, I want you to be able to move beyond a snapshot. If you look at an image and there's nothing compelling, let me give you a big hint. To find out if your image is compelling, don't look at the likes on Facebook. I can show you some god-awful, horrific, out-of-focus images that get over a thousand likes. I mean, horrible shots. That has no bearing necessarily on an image that is outstanding. You know, find someone who, who's better than you and ask them to critique it and be willing to listen to what they say. I'm not going to go get a big critique. I really want to listen to people who are, I think do better than me that I can learn from. I'm not saying people who aren't as good as you are can't give you some good advice because they certainly can. But in many areas of life, you know, if you're trying to learn how to lead a Fortune 500 company, you should go learn from people who've led Fortune 500 companies, not from someone who's never stepped foot uh, in those shoes. If it helps, some of you might be making a list of those things that you love. Some of you might be making a list of places you would love or images you would love. Whatever it is that gets you excited, like if you're going to the library to check out some books on a place or on a subject, what is it you tend to go to first? What is it you go to first? I mean, I see David Dukeman and uh, Michael Freeman, and I can go on and on. Other photographers who do great street photography, and I do a little bit of street photography here and there, but I, I'm not going to travel the world trying to recreate their street photography. If I capture somewhere I'm at, awesome. But the first thing I'm after when I go some new place or someplace I've been a bunch, whether I'm re-going to the Amazon or Costa Rica, I want to represent the things I'm passionate about, the wildlife, the landscape, the night sky, and the macro. That is what makes my heart beat. That is what gets my blood pumping. So 
Don't worry about necessarily replicating great images you see from other photographers in other areas. Focus on the things that get you the most excited. Book the workshops for the destinations that get you the most excited. I've got this one couple. They're absolutely just one of my favorite clients. They're incredible. He has no interest in cold places. And I get that. You know what? Some people don't. I'd much rather be in the cold than hot and humid. So that's my preference. I hate mosquitoes. I'll go to great shots of mosquito country, but I have to build myself up mentally and emotionally because I hate everything about them. So understand that as you allow all of these different elements to flow into your very being, it will make a difference in your photography. All right, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. This is our third so far, and I'm having a great time, and I sure hope you are. Don't forget that you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram by looking up Big Ben Birding and Photo Tours. You can learn more about what I do at Precision Camera website, at the Wildside Nature Tours website, and at my website, tourbigbend.com. I'll have links to some of the resources we talked about today, like uh, the best lens I've ever owned, the Mzuko 150-400 I'll have some links for other resources that you can go check out and help improve your photography as well. Look forward to visiting you next time. Stay safe, get some great images, throw away those snapshots. We'll see you later. Go capture some nature.